Uh, do you ever ask yourself a question of now what? Like you watch a TED Talk and they're convincing you that you should not use any kind of electricity and you're at the end of it you're like, cool, now what? Or, or you watch a movie, a documentary, uh, for the week between New Year, or Christmas and New Year's is like documentary season at the Thera House. And at the end of everything we're like, okay, this was really compelling. Now what? It's like you get to the end of this thing, you go to a concert, you have a life-changing event, and it's the question of what do you do now because you feel different, you think different, you've just been informed, and now you want to live your life different because how can you go back to doing anything else after you've realized this? And so it's that question of now what that is haunting. Uh, our, our culture does that, is, is good at this. We have all the information we can ever think of. But we lack this second step of what do we do with this information that we have. We have Google in our pocket. No more arguments. No more I wonder. It's all, here we go. What's the answer? But we we don't have the handles that we need in order to change our lives because of the information that we have. We're great at information. We're bad at transformation. Does it make sense? Do you guys see that or is it just me? We can look around. How many people still smoke? Yet at the, the Surgeon General's warning says, this is really bad for you. How many people text and drive? Even though we know that it's super dangerous to do, yet we do it all the time. How many of us are not eating enough vegetables? Yet we know that we should eat more. It's like we have all the information right at our fingertips, in our pockets, and we even have things that can finish the words we're spelling. We have autocorrect, which is creepy. Google doesn't even, doesn't even have to know what you're searching for. It, you just look at it, and it autofills everything. Everything, which is weird. And then you give an ad for it two minutes later on your whatever. And it's, it's this weird thing. We have all the information around us, yet we don't have any application of what to do now. This is where Romans 12 kicks in. For the last little bit, Paul has been teaching 11 chapters of what, we, what God has done for you. And then he gets to this point in Romans 12 where if you're going to draw a map, it, this is the ark. And so chapters 1, 2, 3, all the way through, he's building this ark and then he gets to 12. And this is the summit of it all. This is what Paul is getting to. Romans, we started this back in September, and for those who are a little foggy on why we're doing this, Romans is a book written to a church and to a culture that was sharply divided among a whole bunch of issues. Nothing like our culture today. Nothing at all. Romans was, was uh, the church in Rome was planted before, but we first get our first glimpse of it in Acts 18. And the church was planted, and then the Roman emperor came in and kicked all the Jewish people out. So what was left was a a church of Gentiles. And then after five years, the Jewish people were allowed back into Rome. And then their church that they walked into was completely different than what had left. Instead of having all the Jewish worship ways of, of doing church, it was completely Gentile. And they walked in and go, went, what the heck happened here? And then you have the sharp divides on how they worshipped versus how the Jewish people worshipped before they left, the Jewish Christians left. And so you have this divided community of how do we do 
life together. You had some people who thought that they were better than others because they were Jewish. They were from the line of Abraham. You start seeing this in Romans chapter 4. And they're like, no, we're better. We're Jewish. And then you have Gentiles, who non-Jewish folks, come in and go, yeah, but we found Jesus. We didn't need a law. And so you had these arguments going back and forth. They would say, you have to be circumcised. And the Gentiles went, not at all. And, and, and so there was this sharp divides in the church. And Paul writes this Roman, this letter to Romans. And it's something that the church has been trying to figure out thousands of years later. And he says simply this, be unified, stop the divisions. But if only that worked, because it, saying be unified, stop, stop the divisions is the same as my mom and dad yelling in the backseat of the car, stop fighting. It worked for about a minute. And then we started fighting again. Then my brother touched me. And, 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 and it was game on. And so, but this is Paul saying, hey, be unified. In order to be unified, he goes through 11 chapters of why they should be unified. Because they were stuck on issues. The little tiny theology opinions rather than on the transformation that Jesus brings. And he says, you shouldn't be focused on all of that stuff. You should be focused on Christ. Transformation happens and people are being transformed from various parts of their lives, but they're all moving towards the person of Christ. We all start in different places, but the goal is the same. And Paul says, don't get hung up on the different starting places from everybody else. You should rather be hung up on the main goal of your transformation, which is Jesus. And so he writes these books or these 11 chapters saying, be unified. And then he gets to this chapter 12 and then he, he gives this statement. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, be transformed. Offer yourselves a living sacrifice. And then he goes into what living sacrifices are. This is the point. And so Paul gives us three attributes in these two verses of what sacrifices are. First, they are informed. Second, they're holistic. And third, they're transformed. This is one of those famous verses that, that I memorized back when I, I did this thing called Awana, which was memorizing scripture in order to get little prizes, which means you get candy at the end of the thing, and they'll do anything for candy. And so, but I learned this, and we learned it in, in elementary school, and it's one of those famous verses that, we, that Christians have, but we actually miss what Paul is doing here. This verse is a look backwards. He's saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. There's a word there, and the joke never gets old. I say it every time. It begins with therefore, which means what? We have to ask the question, why is therefore therefore? What was Paul doing with this? He's building to something, and then he gets on top, and he looks down the mountain and goes, in view of all that we have discussed here. Everything that we've said in this meaty book, therefore, be different, be transformed. For 12 chapters, and you can break the Romans up into sections. It, uh, in, in the first, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul talks about God's righteousness. And he, he juxtaposes it between how wicked people are and how righteous God is. And that God had the power to save all of us, even though we were trapped under the weight of sin. He says, because of this, we have Christ. Romans 3.23, and most importantly, 3.24. For all have sinned, but then we have Christ who offers us redemption and forgiveness. That's what chapters 1 and 4 are about. You get to the second section, chapters 5 through 8, where Paul talks about this new humanity. Because we have been saved through Christ, because we were once this way of sinful, and now we are declared righteous and holy, we are now reconciled with God, is what Romans 5 says. We, can have, we are a new humanity. 
This spirit is being brought into your life and, and you are different now because of the love that God has for you. You can now get over some of these divisions and love your neighbors. And then you turn to the next section of 9 through 11 and Paul talks about how God fulfills all of his promises. That God's love and God's affection towards us is not based on a national identity. It's based on a new covenant that's found in faith in Christ. In all of these sections, we learn about God's forgiveness, God's provision, God's grace, and we learn how to trust him. So Paul says, all of this, now, therefore. And then he says this other word, therefore, in view of what? In view of God's wrath. In view of God's rules. In view of how angry God is. No. In view of God's mercy. In view of everything that God has done to show mercy, Paul is pleading. It's this urgent request. He's like, no, you don't get it. Look at everything that's happened. A living sacrifice isn't something that makes this casual agreement to do something. Paul says you are going to be living sacrifices because you are well informed of everything that God has done for you. All of those mercies that I've spent a lot of ink getting to Look at them. Now, this is why we offer ourselves living sacrifices. Have you ever done something very, very nice for somebody and they treat you like dirt? Yes? Have a toddler. That's what happens. You keep this thing alive. You feed it. And then they literally throw it back in your face. You're like, but look at every... We've given you life. My dad used to say, I've given you life. I can take it. But it's this idea of you do everything and, and, and Paul's saying, look at everything God's done for you. Now the least thing you can do is look at it and offer yourselves a living sacrifice. Notice that the, that the motivation behind it is God's mercy. We live in a place where we don't necessarily look at mercy a lot. We like to obey things because of consequences. Uh, there are theologies and places that we start to talk about God and instantly they say, look at God's wrath and therefore you will live accordingly. That doesn't really last. Paul says, no, no, no. Look at the mercies. Christian life, the Christian faith doesn't begin with a healthy dose of wrath. It begins with a healthy dose of what God's mercies look like. It's sure, there are ways to live. There are rules. There's an ethic that goes along with Christianity. But it's not based on anything of, of, of wrath. It's based solely on mercy. God's mercy has come to meet us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. Where he says, uh, because of the mercy of God, you have gone from death to life. You have been dead and now your life because of these mercies. Someone's uh, thing is, is really dancing up there. It's awesome. Was it you? Yeah, it's great. I know when you're texting. Oh, okay. We're all like cats with the laser beam. We're all doing this. It's great. And now you're as red as your sweatshirt. It's awesome. Everyone say hi to Caitlin. Good to see you. Okay, no one look at Caitlin anymore. Okay, look at God's mercy. Like how I did that? 
Look at God's mercy. This is the motivation for why we meet. This is the motivation for why we worship. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of a, a, a wrath. It's not out of fear. It's out of mercy. God gave us mercy. Therefore, we, the next only response is to offer yourself back. And offer yourself back as a living sacrifices. And you're informed of God's mercy. The now what is like, okay, I'm in. All of me. Living sacrifices are informed. Living sacrifices are also holistic. Uh, When you look at this, it says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Sacrifice in this culture was one of those loaded terms. Everyone knew what sacrifice was. It'd be really hard to walk through the streets of Rome and walk by a church or, or a place of worship, a temple, and not see a sacrifice happening. Even the Jews were very familiar with what sacrifice was. This was their whole concept of worship was built on sacrifices. Leviticus 16, in case you really want to get into Leviticus, uh, it goes, this is what sacrifices are. This is how how they're supposed to be sacrificed. And so if you were Jewish, you knew Leviticus like it was the back of your hand because this was your life. And so when Paul says sacrifice, it's, not, it's, it's, it's an illustration, a metaphor that's not lost on them. They understand what it means. A sacrifice was offering something on an altar, live, uh, living and non-living, to be burned completely and holistically for God. It was their worship. But there was this thing with sacrifice. It, 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 after uh, Jesus and the new church that showed up, sacrifice was uh, talked about like before. Uh, they would, the Christians of that day didn't do sacrifices. The sacrifice was Christ. We don't have an altar up here where we're going to throw something on and burn anymore. It, for them, it's, it turned into metaphor. For us, it's metaphor. But Paul is doing something here where he takes it away from the metaphor. He talks about it in metaphor in Philippians where he says, I pour myself out as a sacrifice, as a drink, a drink offering. Peter talks about it metaphor and says, we are, we are sacrifices, to our, we offer our, our bodies as spiritual sacrifices, but Paul says something different here. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He takes the metaphor out of it. He says, this is your body, and the word that he uses is the Greek word soma, which is more than just your flesh body. The Greek word soma is everything about you. Every thought Every action, everything that's hidden, everything that you've never thought you would say, every part of you, soma, it's, it's the idea that's the best that they can do back in those days to get down to microcellular biology. The smallest part of you, and I don't even know if that's a thing, but the smallest part of you, every last bit, hop on that altar. This is the only reasonable thing that Paul says you can do after you've seen God's mercies. There's not much else that you could come to it. Every part of you. Uh, In Leviticus, there was a a certain code. Sacrifices had to be set apart. Sacrifices had to be special. There was a certain quality that your animal or that your grain would have in order to be deemed acceptable to God. Paul says it's the same kind of thing. He's he's hyperlinking, if you will, back to Leviticus uh, 16, saying this word sacrifice it's a special thing, it's a set-apart thing, it's, it's, it's holy, it's different, it's all of you. 
And that's offered to God because he uses this word called living sacrifice, which makes things a little different, a lot more complicated. Because if the sacrifice is still living, as one author says, it's a lot easier for the sacrifice to keep taking itself off the altar. You can put part of you on and go, yes, I'm giving this to God. Three weeks later, this is really hard. I'm taking it back. Living sacrifice is a different way of thinking about life. It's willingly placing yourself on the altar. Anything less, according to Paul, would not be acceptable. And he uses those words, holy and acceptable. In the book of Malachi, uh, he he talks in, in chapter one, Malachi is about the way that the Jews were worshiping God and falling short of worshiping uh, him. He talks about how the the, the priests were bringing these sacrifices to God, but they weren't meeting up to the code that God wanted. They weren't holy. They weren't pleasing. They were blemished. They didn't meet it. And so God says, I'm done with you. Look in Malachi one. We're going to look at verse eight and verse 10. He says, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? It's defiled offering in Leviticus 16. This goes right against it. It says, when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Do you get what he's saying? You offer your best to your political leaders, your governors, but you give God the scraps. Is that not why God's saying, do you see the problem with this? And he says in verse 10, oh, that you would instead shut the doors to your temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. In essence, what he's saying is stop going through the motions because you don't really mean this. And because of this, God says, I don't even want your sacrifices anymore. So Paul picks up on this, and what he's proposing is intense. Because honestly, a once a year sacrifice is a lot easier than a daily sacrifice, which is what he's getting at. It's a daily, daily offering of yourself. It's waking up in the morning and saying, I offer this day all of me to all of you. As a sacrifice, may it be pleasing to you. The sacrifice is offered in response to mercy, and it's not a one-and-done thing. It's not something that you can do at the 9 o'clock service on Sunday, and then you're good for the week. It's a lifestyle. It's the soma part of you. It's when you get up in the morning. It's when you make breakfast. It's that little bathroom break before that. It's every piece of you is offered in worship. Sacrifice means that something is put to death. Something is killed. And in this context, we are the ones that are put to death. We are the ones that are on the altar. Our lives are then lived in submission, not to what we want, not to what our culture wants, not to what our friends deem necessary. Our lives are lived in in submission, holistically sacrificed to what God wants and what God deems necessary. Try saying that out loud in the, in the culture of 2019 in Seattle, where we like our freedoms, we like our choice, we love pure plurality. Uh, what's right for you might not be right for me, but hey, you're entitled to your own opinions. Live your life the way you want, as long as you live, let me live my life the way I want. That's what we're used to, right? But God says, no, 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 no. It's not necessarily what you want. It's not necessarily what I want. It's what 
God wants. That's the complete sacrifice. And for God, for Malachi and for Paul, this is what he's getting at. A holistic sacrifice means that we put to death the idea that we belong to ourselves. It doesn't mean that we go around being robots, as if we don't have a free will. We have a free will. We can take ourselves off the altar at any time. Paul says, you, you, you can do this. I urge you not to. Once you've seen what God has done for you, why would you offer anything else besides your whole body, your soma, the everything about you? Why would you do anything differently? Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You have, the, you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. An informed sacrifice, a holistic sacrifice, says, God, I serve you. That's the word worship. I worship you. And Paul says, this is your true sacrifice. This is what you're supposed to do. Your life is on the altar. You're already dead. Congratulations. You've been brought to new life in Christ. This is Romans 6, 13, Romans 6, 16. You've been brought to new life in Christ. Have any of you seen the show Band of Brothers? Oh, yeah, so Tim's seen it. it it's, it's very graphic, very intense. If you don't like intensity, not your show. But there was this part where they're getting ready to jump into uh, uh, World War II D-Day. And they're, they're on this plane, and they're freaking out, as you would. But there was one guy, Gurnier, who was just a, he was a mean man, and he was fine. And they asked him, why aren't you nervous? And he goes, oh, you already, you, you think you're still alive. I'm fighting this battle like I'm already dead. So what have I got to lose? And he went in with courage and bravery, and he came out the other end alive. And it's the same thing with us. We like to fight against this will of God saying, I want to live life my way. I want to do it my thing, but you are already dead. Your life isn't your own. Your life is now lived in accordance to what God wants, not necessarily you want, and that's my music to pull me off. But there's this, I, this is the thing. You are not your own. You, the worship something is complete offering of yourself to God. We like to say this, and uh, you see it in every other movie. God, if you get me through this, then I'll do that, right? If you get me this job promotion, then I'll serve. If you, if you get me uh, this car, if you get me this spouse, then I'll finally do this. If you get me blank, then I'll do blank. The problem with the if-then statements is it's still having, you're, you're not on the altar and you're serving whatever is at the back end of that if statement. God says, no, 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 no. Do this. Don't if-then me. Give me your whole life. Uh, give me your life utterly abandoned to me. Your whole body, that's the sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice. I want your complete, undivided attention. I took Judah, uh, Andy and myself took our boys to the monster truck rally yesterday down in Tacoma, which is a, a whole experience. But Judah, is, he's three, his attention span is about like that. And, but the, for, for a good 20 minutes, which is a long time for him, he was dialed. He couldn't think of anything else. He wanted to see the monster trucks. I got video of him just eating popcorn. 
He didn't know. He was completely sold out to any to this only one thing that was important to him: monster trucks and grave digger. That's all he wanted to see. Grave digger is all he talked about for the rest of the night and including this morning. But it's it was this utter abandon. He didn't care about anything else. He was his life was lived at that moment for monster trucks. And this is what Paul is saying. None of the other stuff matters, truly. Once you see God's mercy, live your life in utter abandonment towards what God has for you. Sacrifices are informed, they're holistic, and lastly, sacrifices are transformed. Uh, Verse 2, don't conform uh, to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's that thing again, that whole thing that we like to get wrapped up on about God's will. We all want to know God's will. Well, how do we know God's will? Easy. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. When he uses the phrase this world, Paul is describing the current state of wickedness that is surrounding him. We like to... uh, uh, romanticized Roman culture, we look at their art and go, oh, weren't they so sophisticated? We, we think of their politics and we model our politics after theirs, which will make sense in a minute. But we think they're so great. But Romans, when you scratch the surface and actually begin to study what the Roman culture was, they were Latin-speaking savages that, uh, that happened to wear togas. They were brutal They weren't nice people. There was a general that fought against them, and he talks about how cruel and merciless they were. He says this about them. The Romans, they ransacked the world, and then afterwards, when all the land has been laid waste by their pillaging, they scour the sea. They plunder, they murder, they rape in the name of their so-called empire, and where they have made a desert, they call it peace. So Paul's saying, hey, don't be like them. That's not something to be like. Don't be like the pagans. When he's talking about pagans, he's talking about the Roman culture. They're not something to be modeled after. Remember, you're living sacrifices. Don't conform to their way of living. Don't let them influence you from the outside in. Instead, he says, be transformed, which was a brand new way of thinking in that day. And and, and the teachers and philosophers of that day would say, oh, blend in. Don't, don't worry about anything internally. Just put on the toga, learn the Latin, become savage. That's what they would say. It just, just blend into life. However, Paul says this, don't conform, transform, which would have been a way. Say what, Paul? Paul is saying, uh, this is a complete and utter renovation of your life from the inside out. It's taking this house that you have built and completely going down to the bare studs of your life and saying, now I'm going to build this, but I'm going to build one room at a time from the inside to the outside. I'm not just going to fix the yard and put on new siding to this house. I'm going to start internally. I'm going to go deep down and I'm going to fix the plumbing. And then I'm going to fix the electricity. And then I'm going to re-wall and re-drywall and redo everything until it's built up from the inside out. Paul says to be transformed. You can't change your life by just simply changing the outside of your life. Paul says if you really want to live as sacrifices, you have to start within. And the first step he says here is, the first step is renewing your mind. 
He says a brand new way of thinking is what's needed. Renew your mind. Uh, It's the only way to allow the Spirit of God to work within you and renew you from the inside out. It's a process. It's not something that's done overnight. He says when you do this, you'll be able to uncover and see what God approves of. And this word approve means simply that, uncover. You want to know how how you want to see what God approves of? Start renewing your mind. Start allowing the Spirit to work in you, to convict you, to point some things out that says, hey, you belong on this altar. This part of right here, this bitterness that you're holding on to because something happened last week and you're just angry of it, that bitterness needs to be put on the altar. These false gods that we have of, of, of perfection, these false gods that we have that, that we have to blend in, that needs to be put on the altar. And the way you do that is allowing God to move within your mind. You uncover what it means to follow him. You uncover, then you're able to discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect. It's not something that happens overnight. We like things like this, right? This is a lifestyle. This is something that starts today and will continue all the way until you're dead. It's a lifestyle of sacrifice. It's a lifestyle of renewal. It's also an internal process. The transformation that Paul talks about is not something where you can set up a bunch of rules and say, I'm going to be changed by rules. Rules never really changed anyone, have they? How many of you speed? Yes, the rule has never changed your speeding habits. How long did you speed after, or how long was it until you sped again after you got the speeding ticket? About three days, right? The punishment didn't really bring change. It just made your wallet lighter. And Paul says here, don't get wrapped up in rules. That's not the point here. Conformity gets wrapped up in rules. Don't conform. Go deeper. Transform. Conformity is skin deep. Just a couple layers. Transformation is is a heart change. And this is what Paul is saying. You need a heart change. We all need a heart change. Carrie and I have been watching this show on Netflix, the, the Marie Kondo show. Have we seen this? Yeah? If you haven't, uh, you'll get rid of everything. Uh, she, she's literally this, I, she's probably this tall, uh, a Japanese woman, and, and she helps people clean out the clutter of their life. And so the first thing she does is she goes to your closets of your clothes and, and, and make, make, put them all on, on your bed. And there was this woman with like a 15-foot pile of clothes that still had the tags on. And all of these things were just cluttering their houses. There was that, that same woman had a whole room de- dedicated to the nutcracker for Christmas decorations. It was, it was intense. But she has this thing where she says, you're going to get everything. You're going to look at it. And you're going to ask you this question. Does it spark joy? And, uh, and I'm, I'm so worried that Carrie keeps watching this show if she's going to come up to me. And look at me and go, (laughs) you don't spark joy anymore. But if it doesn't spark joy, her thing is, thank it, which is weird, but I get it, and then get rid of it. And what you see is these people's lives are transformed. And they're not transformed just by finding more storage or going to the storage store and buying more containers. It's not, that's, that's not what changes their life. They're changing their life by addressing every single smallest aspect of their life. And if it sparks joy, they get a new place, new way to fold it, which is awesome. 
and you put it away and you hold on to it because that leads you to joy. This is what Paul's talking about here. You see God's mercy. Now what? What do you do after you've viewed it? See yourself as a sacrifice. You're no longer your own. You're informed of God's mercy. So you say, I need to change. How do you change? You offer your whole body. How do you offer your whole body? You start taking an inventory of everything that you do from the heart out, from the inside out to the outside. And you start asking, does this spark joy with God? Is this the transformation that God wants for my life? And if it doesn't, get rid of it. Put it on the altar. You don't need it anymore. It's not getting you anywhere. It's just holding you down and cluttering up your closets. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Uh, We thank you that you're not a God that rules by rules. Uh, You rule by saying, look how good I am. Look how gracious I am. And then you, you say, we, and then you tell us to respond. Not in fear, but in love. Uh, it, it, we are described as a God who is gracious and kind, long-suffering. You put up with a lot of our stuff. And you say, I'm never going to leave you. You can do to set you apart from me. There's nothing you can do to make me go away. Not the highest of highs, not the lowest of lows, and not the biggest of sins. I'm with you. And you say you'll never leave us. And so God, as we respond in worship, which is the only reasonable response, is to worship, may you begin to uh, Marie Kondo our lives. To point out the places that you say, This isn't pushing you towards me. This isn't pushing you towards transformation. This is actually going the opposite way. Lord, would you give us the courage to when we have that revelation from you that we would uh, get rid of it and put it on the altar. It's the only thing we have to do. In Jesus' name, amen.